So far in our Bible overview, there's been a piece missing. Have you ever done a jigsaw and found that there's a piece missing? If you have, then it wouldn't have been obvious from the start. But it's only as things progress uh, that it becomes clearer and clearer that there's another bit that you need. And it's the same with the Bible. So far in our overview of the Bible, we've talked a lot about the kingdom of God. But we haven't talked much about the king of the kingdom. Of course, ultimately, God is the king of the kingdom. He's the one who gives Adam and Eve rules uh, that they must obey if they're to keep on living in the Garden of Eden. God is the one who rescues his people from Egypt and gives them the Ten Commandments. But from almost the very beginning, there's the promise of a human king. And it becomes clearer and clearer as we go on that the progress of the kingdom of God will be closely tied to this king. And we have two points this morning. We're going to see firstly, uh, the king, kingdom of God reach its highest point in the Old Testament under such a king. But then we're going to see the decline of the kingdom when God's kings stop ruling as God would have them. Uh, So two points, we'll spend most of our time on the first one, uh, which is the king of the kingdom. The king of the kingdom. The idea that God's kingdom would be ruled by a human king is there from the very beginning. What role did God give Adam at the start? Well, he told him, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And that language of dominion is kingly language. Adam was meant to be God's representative king. But Adam failed in the task God had given him. And yet as soon as he did, God promised that one would come who would succeed where Adam failed. Who wouldn't listen to the serpent as Adam had done, but would crush its head. And it makes sense that if Adam had been meant to act as king, uh, this promised descendant would be a king as well. God's kingdom and covenant promises become even clearer when God calls Abraham. And part of God's promise to Abraham was that kings shall come from you. In Jacob's day, that promise became even more specific uh, because uh, Jacob has uh, 12 sons and we're told that the king is going to come not from Joseph as we might expect but from Judah. Uh, Genesis 49 10 uh, spells this out. Uh, The promise will come, uh, the king will come from the line of Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So God tells Abraham that kings will come from him. He tells Jacob uh, that, that, that a king is going to come from the line of Judah in particular. 
And then in Deuteronomy 17, God specifically tells the people through Moses that when they reach the promised land, they can choose a king for themselves. So all that goes to show that a king has been on God's agenda from the beginning. But how does this fit in with what we've been looking at so far in this series? We've been thinking each week about the four elements of God's kingdom. God's people, God's place, God's rule and God's blessing and presence. Last time we saw how each of those was fulfilled when the Israelites reached the promised land. They were God's people in the promised land. They were a people who had been rescued from slavery, not because they deserved it, but because of the blood of a lamb. They were in God's place. Uh, The promised land was God's place. In the promised land, they were under God's rule. Uh, They'd been given the Ten Commandments. And they experienced God's blessing. Uh, A relationship with him made possible by the forgiveness of sin pictured by the tabernacle. So in the promised land we have God's people in God's place under God's rule and they were experiencing God's blessing. So what need is there for a, a human king? Well we finished last time with the book of Joshua And Joshua, like Moses before him, warned the people that if they sinned, they would be removed from the land. So would they listen? Well, the book of Joshua is immediately followed by Judges, which is one of the bleakest books in the Bible. Uh, God's people in it go on a downward spiral. In his grace, God sends them judges, uh, not law court judges uh, wearing wigs but military leaders and the people generally obeyed God during the lifetime of each judge but as soon as the judge would die uh, the people would go off the rails again and in fact by the end of the book they end up committing the same sort of sins that God had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah for So they're God's people, they're in God's place, but they don't obey his rule and they stop experiencing his blessing. So what's the explanation for the people's sin? Well, there's one phrase that crops up four times in the book of Judges. It's in the very last line of the book and it also occurs three other times. And if you don't know what the phrase is, Remember this, and if you're ever reading the book of Judges, this will explain what's going on. This is the phrase, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The fact that we have that phrase four times tells us that it's very significant. And do you see what the author of Judges is saying? The people acted the way they did because they had no king. If they had had a king, things would have been different. They wouldn't simply have done what was right in their own eyes. The picture of the kingdom is incomplete without a king. So you have Joshua warning the people about not falling into sin. You have judges which 
tells us that the people fall into sin uh, because they don't have a king. And then you have the little book of Ruth. And at the end of that great love story uh, recorded in the book of Ruth, uh, Ruth marries a man called Boaz. And the very last word of the book of Ruth is David. Ruth and Boaz are going to have a descendant called David. So who is David and why is he significant? Well, we find that out in the next book or, or books, First and Second Samuel. Uh, originally, uh, what one book, uh, but but uh, we have them as First and Second Samuel. And First and Second Samuel, uh, we're, we're told not to judge a book by its title. First uh, and Second Samuel are not really about Samuel. Uh, Samuel does play a key role in the opening chapters of First Samuel. He is both the last judge and a prophet. He's the first prophet to be recognised as such by the whole nation since the days of Moses. But Samuel dies partway through the first book that bears his name. His most important contribution is anointing first Saul and then David as Israel's first two kings. This push to have a king didn't come from Samuel, however, it came from the people Now, since God had told them that they could have a king, asking for a king wasn't wrong in and of of itself, but they wanted a king for the wrong reasons. They wanted a king who would fight their battles and give them political stability. As they put it themselves, they wanted a king like all the nations around them. All the people around us, they have a king. We want to be just like them. Uh, The temptation always for those who bear God's name to to want to be like those around them. In short, they wanted a king instead of God rather than a king under God. They wanted a king to replace God rather than a king to rule according to God's word. And God spells out to Samuel what they're doing. They have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Now the man they chose looked like a king. He looked the very definition of a king. His name was Saul. He was tall. He was handsome. He was a great warrior. He would have matched what the nations around would have looked for in a king. But back in Deuteronomy, God had laid out his criteria for a king. And he had called for a king who would lead the way in holiness. A king who would write out a copy of God's law and meditate on it day and night. God's word was to be the real uh, power behind the throne. God's word was to set the direction, not the, the whims of the king. But Saul didn't listen to God's word as it came to him through Samuel. And eventually he was rejected as king. And God's verdict on him comes in 1 Samuel 15. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. So a sad end to Israel's first king. The next king, however, would be different. Samuel tells Saul that this time God is going to choose a man after his own heart. Uh, we know his name already from the book of Ruth. It's, it's David. 
Unlike Saul, David was not an obvious pick for a king. Samuel thought that David's oldest brother looked more like a king. But God reminded Samuel how man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. It's always important for us to remember. And yet David will find that just like Jesus, being God's anointed king doesn't exempt you from persecution. In fact, it attracts persecution. Even after God rejects Saul as king, Saul continues as king. And he hunts down David with demonic ferocity. Despite David continually demonstrating his loyalty to Saul. In fact, Saul's persecution of David defies human explanation. Have you ever thought about that? David demonstrates his loyalty to Saul time and time again. He refuses to kill Saul when he has a chance, when his men are urging him to do it. So why does Saul keep hounding him? If there was a man in the whole kingdom that Saul could have trusted, David had demonstrated that it was him. Why does Saul keep hounding him? Uh, Well, it can only be that there's something more going on than meets the eye. It, It can only be because Satan thinks that David is the serpent crusher promised in Genesis 3, 15. And so he, he moves Saul to try and destroy him. Don't just read Bible stories on the level of the human characters. Ask what God is doing through those characters. And don't forget the reality of the devil and his demons scheming and plotting behind the scenes. Once Saul is finally dead, then David comes to the throne. In some of his first actions as king, he captures the city of Jerusalem and he makes it his capital. And then he brings the Ark of the Covenant into the, the capital. The Ark of the Covenant, it pictured God's throne, it represented God's rule. And so for David to bring it to Jerusalem is to make a statement. He's saying that he wants God to rule through him. The technical term for that is a theocracy. Uh, we live in a, a democracy. Uh, that means that the people have the authority. Uh, but a theocracy is where God calls the shots. Uh, so what we have in the Bible isn't just a monarchy. It's not just the king doing what he thinks best. Uh, but it's a king ruling under God's law. Uh, I guess we could, could say a constitutional monarchy where the law of God is the constitution. And at this point, uh, we read that the Lord had given David rest from all his surrounding enemies. Uh, The throne of Israel had never been more secure. And then in 2 Samuel 7, we have the most significant event of David's life. It's not where David kills Goliath. It's where God makes a covenant with him. We've seen so far in the Bible God making a covenant with Adam and then with Abraham and now he makes one with David. But this momentous event doesn't start with 
God offering to do something for David. It starts with David offering to do something for God. Uh, David finds himself living in this plush palace and is troubled that God is still living in a tent, as it were. So he wants to build a permanent dwelling for God. But God says, no, I didn't ask you to build me a house. In fact, I'm the one who's going to build you a house. And when God promises to build a house for David, he isn't promising to build him a literal house. He means that a line of kings are going to come from David. Verse 12 of 2 Samuel 7. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish his kingdom forever. So someone is going to be descended from David whose kingdom will be established forever. This promise will be partially fulfilled in Solomon, but it is too great a promise for any human king to fulfill. In fact, Isaiah chapter 9 will prophesy about the one who will sit on the throne of David and who will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So the future prospects of God's kingdom depend on the promised king. And so from here on, God's people are going to be waiting for a great descendant of David. They're going to be waiting for the one who they would call the Messiah or the Christ. Uh, And those words, Messiah and Christ, they're just uh, from the Hebrew and Greek words for anointed. They're waiting for God's anointed. David didn't fulfill all their hopes. Solomon didn't fulfill all their hopes. They were waiting for a greater king. But that's to get ahead of ourselves. Uh, One thing we shouldn't miss here is that God isn't doing something completely new. The promises that God makes to David are very similar to the promises he made to Abraham. Uh, They fit into the same four categories. Uh, Look at 2 Samuel 7, 9 and 10. Uh, Firstly, there's the, the people promise. In verse 9, God is going to be with David and the kings descended from him in a special way. Uh, But the rest of the people aren't excluded. Verse 10 talks about my people, Israel. So there we have God's people. Then there's a place, verse 10. I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place. Then there's God's presence and blessing. Verse 10, God says his people will not be disturbed anymore and violent men won't afflict them anymore. And in verse 13, that David's son will build a house for his name. God will dwell with his people permanently, no longer just in a temporary tabernacle. A true blessing has at its heart a, a relationship with God. And God's presence was symbolized by the temple. So we have God's people, God's place, God's blessing. What about God's rule? Well, we've seen that the king must rule according to God's command. Verse 14 uh, lays out what will happen if the, king, the king's son commits iniquity. Uh, iniquity being defined uh, as Psalm 132 says that David and his sons must keep God's testimonies. Uh, 
So, to sum it up, all the elements of God's promise to Abraham are here again. God's people, in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying God's presence and blessing. God's covenant with David is not something radically new. It's a a development of his covenant with Abraham. And amazingly, things are going to get even better before tragically they fall apart. David's son Solomon has been described both as the perfecter of Israel's glory and the architect of its destruction. And it's to his reign that we come to next. And so our second point, uh, a bit more briefly this morning, is the decline of the kingdom. The decline of the kingdom. Do you look back on a golden age, maybe a, a time in history in which you would have liked to live, or a time in your own life where you think, I never had it so good as I had it then? Well, I think we could say that the golden age in the Old Testament is the first 10 chapters of 1 Kings. Uh, We read Solomon's summary of it earlier. Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he had promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise which he spoke by Moses, his servant. Under Solomon, each of the, the four kingdom elements reach their height. First, we've God's people. First Kings 4.20 says that the people of Israel and Judah were as many as the sand by the sea. Uh, and that language should ring a bell. It's a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. In Genesis 22, God had said, I will surely bless you and will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. God was doing what he had promised. Then there's God's place. Now God's people have been in the promised land for a while at this point. So how can things get any better? But Solomon rules over a greater area than anyone either before or after him. 1 Kings 4.21 Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms of the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. We have the kingdoms of the earth recognising and submitting to God's kingdom. And it's not always by way of unwilling conquest. In Solomon's day, the Queen of Sheba hears of the wisdom that God has given to Solomon and she comes to experience it for herself. God had promised Abraham, in you and in your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It was never about blessing being restricted to the Jewish people. Uh, And we see that fulfilled uh, uh, on a grand scale from the day of Pentecost onwards in the New Testament. But already in the days of Solomon, the nations of the earth are being blessed through the promised seed of Abraham. Gentiles who recognise God's chosen king are blessed. And it's the same for for us, uh, a bunch of Gentiles sitting here today. True blessing will only be found in recognising God's true king, Jesus Christ. Thirdly, we have God's rule. Uh, The Ark of the Covenant has the Ten Commandments. 
Uh, it's placed in the temple that Solomon builds. And when Solomon becomes king, his throne and God's throne are closely linked. If I first Chronicles 29, 23 tells us that Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king and all Israel obeyed him. And then finally, we have God's blessing and presence under Solomon. God's presence seen above all in the temple Solomon builds uh, and the glory of the Lord comes and fills that house. Uh, The people know peace with God and peace with their fellow man uh, because one flows from the other. 1 Kings 4.20, they ate and drank and were happy. Summary of God's kingdom on earth. The people ate and drank and were happy. Uh, Verse 25, Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba. Every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. Again, a picture of the rule of uh, Solomon's son, the Lord Jesus. God's people are in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying God's presence and blessing. True happiness can be found nowhere else. But tragically, it wasn't to last. Uh, And we've spent a long time on the kingdom being built up but it won't take long to tell of its decline. Part of God's job description for a king in Deuteronomy 17 was that he shouldn't acquire many wives for himself, lest they turn his heart away from God. That was Solomon's downfall. He took 700 wives, 300 concubines. To make things worse, those wives and concubines came from the idol-worshipping nations round about Nations God had specifically told his people not to intermarry with. Soon Saul is building places of worship for his wives' gods, including one to Molech, who was worshipped by child sacrifice. It's all scarily up to date. How many once enthusiastic Christians have had their faith blunted, if not extinguished, by getting into a relationship with a non-believer? And the result is that Solomon's heart turns away from the Lord. God's judgment falls in 1 Kings 11. 1 Kings 1 to 10, you remember the golden age. 1 Kings 11. The Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I commanded you, I will surely tear my kingdom from you. And yet this won't be the end of God's kingdom. Remember God's promise to David about his son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And so if God is to be faithful to his promise, he can't totally destroy his people. Which is still our hope today. After Solomon dies, the kingdom is torn in two. Solomon's son Rehoboam keeps the city of Jerusalem and the two southern tribes of Benjamin and Judah. That means Solomon's son has the palace and the temple and two tribes. But the ten northern tribes form a breakaway state. And 
Confusingly, Israel splits into two uh, different sections, one of which is, is still called Israel, uh, but that's the, the ten tribes in the north. And the southern kingdom is known as Judah. But the kings of this new ten tribe, Israel, they aren't descended from David. Uh, and they are soon in full-scale rebellion against God. Uh, one of whom we'll meet tonight, he's called Ahab. Uh, the covenant promises were, had not been given to, the, to this breakaway kingdom. Uh, none of them have any hope of setting up a lasting dynasty. And the end uh, for this uh, rebel Israel comes in 722 BC, uh, 200 years after the nation divided. Uh, they're defeated. Thousands of the Israelites are carried off into exile. And in their place, their part of the promised land is filled with people from the enemy nations round about. They then intermarry with the remaining Israelites and become the Samaritans who were so hated by the Jews in Jesus' day. So if you wonder where this antagonism to the Samaritans comes from, it's because they were, they were the part of Israel who had been unfaithful to God. They intermarried with the, the nations around them. And that's why uh, people in Jesus' day so despised them. Things go somewhat better in the southern kingdom, which is ruled by the descendants of David and Solomon. Uh, every now and then, they do get a faithful king who, who gets rid of the idols and restores the true worship of God. But even that doesn't last long. Eventually, a king called Manasseh comes to the throne and he is so steeped in idolatry that God's patience finally runs out. And even though Manasseh himself will repent and be restored, under his reign, things had reached the point of no return. And in the final two chapters of Second Kings, we see covenant blessings re reversed. The people blessing is undone as thousands are carried away to Babylon. The place blessing is undone when the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, is hit with a famine so severe uh, that no one can eat. Uh, worst of all, the blessing of God's presence is removed as the city of Jerusalem and the temple itself are destroyed. And yet amazingly, Second Kings ends on a positive note. It describes the the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of, a temp of the temple, God's people being, being carried away into exile. How can there be any positives? And yet we have in the last couple of verses of Second Kings uh, something which, which is like one of those clips that you get at the end of a movie which set up a sequel when it looks like all has been lost, uh, when it looks like the, the hero has been killed and you get a little clip which tells you that all is not yet lost. Because 37 years after the heir to David's throne has been carried off into exile, he's freed from prison and he begins to dine at the king's table. And it is just a tiny hint, just a hint that God's people still have a future. It looked like it should have been the end, and it should have been the end. But God had made promises to David and so as God's people lived in exile, as they wept by the rivers of Babylon, they had hope. 
And that hope was totally bound up with God's promises to David. As we'll see in two weeks' time when we come back to this series, uh, the prophets who came will explain that God isn't finished with the people yet. Uh, Their hope is that they will yet be restored to the land and once more a son of David will sit upon the throne. We'll have to leave the story there for now. But maybe you're wondering, well, how does this survey of Old Testament history help you in the week ahead? How does what happened in 722 BC or or 586 BC give you any hope for 2023 AD? Well, the message is that there is always hope for those who are trusting in David's son. Uh, Those who have maybe reached rock bottom, they see no hope in their lives. And yet our message for them is that there is hope if they put their trust in David's son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Or perhaps for you, no matter how respectable you may be on the outside, no matter how many years of church attendance under your belt, there is no hope in any of that. But there is hope if you will just trust in Jesus Christ. Those who went their own way in what we've looked at today, they prospered for a bit, but eventually they were destroyed. But bleak as it may seem at times, the story is never over for those who are trusting in God's Messiah. Amen. Well, let's close by singing a psalm most likely written in exile. That's the thing about these psalms that we sing. They were written, many of them, uh, when God's people were in exile, when uh, the line of kings descended from David was gone, and yet they hoped that God would send, as he had said, a promised son of David. Uh, And that hope is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Uh, So the psalms look forward to Jesus Christ. And Psalm 89, we're singing verses 35 to 39, starting on page 207. What is it that gives God's people in exile any hope? Uh, They say, verse 35, How long, Lord, will you hide yourself? Will it forever be? And will your wrath burn like a fire for eternity? But in the midst of their despair, they appeal to God's promise to David. Where are your loving kindnesses that once, O Lord, were there? When in your loving faithfulness to David, you did swear. Despite what it looked like, those people in exile believed that God was going to keep his promises. And as we look out at our world, as we look to the future, do we have the same faith? Do we, yes, lament what we see around us but trust that everything is going to be okay because of God's promised Messiah so Psalm 89 35 to 39 will stand as we sing praise <laughs>